The Honorable Alan D. Shankman presides over the busiest appellate court in the state of New York and possibly the nation. Last year, the Appellate Division Second Department took in 4,300 records on appeal. To put that in perspective, the Appellate Division First Department in Manhattan took in 2,742. The Appellate Division Third Department and Fourth Department combined took in 2,742. The Second Department hears more oral arguments and decides many more motions than any other appellate court in the state. Welcome to part two of a four-part series, Meet Your PJ, created and sponsored by the New York State Judicial Institute. I'm John Carr, Senior Advisor for Strategic Communications, and today I'll be chatting with Justice Shankman. Judge Shankman was appointed presiding justice by Governor Andrew Cuomo on January 1st, 2018. He was previously the administrative judge for the 9th Judicial District, and he served in the appellate term, and he was a trial judge in state Supreme Court. Justice Shankman, thank you for joining us. As I said at the beginning, your court is the busiest in the state. Why is your caseload so enormous? John, thank you for giving me the opportunity to chat with you today. When the appellate divisions were created in the 1890s, the four departments were designed to have roughly similar caseloads. The first department, having Manhattan, which was the most uh, urban part of the state, just had the Bronx. The second, third, and fourth departments were comparatively uh, rural counties. In, in the second department, while Brooklyn may have had a significant urban area, uh, there were parts of Brooklyn that were still rural, and the rest of the department was almost entirely rural. Starting particularly in the aftermath of World War II, the population explosion in Queens, Staten Island, Nassau, Suffolk, Westchester, Rockland, Orange counties into Dutchess County has just been remarkable. With, as, as a result, the second department now has about one half of the state's population. With that comes business activity and human interaction. So business disputes, zoning matters, uh, divorces, car accidents, criminal offenses, all of these have led to an explosion in our case. So over the decades, there have been various proposals to split the second department into two and create a fifth department. The devil in the details has always been how to split that into two and, and who gets what. And can you just speak to whether there is a need for a fifth department without getting into the logistics of uh, how that would look? I think there is. At present, with one vacancy, we have 21 judges, including myself, on the court. It's hard for the court of, of 21 judges to speak consistently and with one voice without having panel conflicts. We do our best to try to avoid that, but it, inevitably it, it does happen. And it's hard, particularly now, in, of course, with the COVID, uh, to get 21 judges around the table to have a, a discussion about common issues and, and themes and try to resolve uh, panel inconsistencies. The, it, a smaller court would, would work. However, to be effective, it wouldn't be just the exist, dividing the existing 21 judges into a second court. To really accomplish reform, there would have to be more judges. If we didn't add more judges, then all we would be doing is rearranging the deck chairs, so to speak, without really making an improvement. So 
I think a two smaller courts out of the existing large court would be a help, but only if it was accompanied by an increase in the total number of judges over what we have now. Now you mentioned panel inconsistencies, and I think what you're saying is that there's a potential of different panels on the same appellate division to come to different conclusions of law. Correct. How do you how, how do you reconcile that internally? Well, we actually have a, a rigorous uh, internal process under which our decisions department reviews all the decisions before they're set for publication. And as a last clear chance, uh, I have a regular weekly meeting with representatives from the decisions department, a deputy clerk, uh, and two law clerks. And the five or six of us, depending upon the composition that week, go through every decision. And we sometimes find inconsistencies either with um, existing decisions. Uh, sometimes we even find inconsistencies within decisions within that handout. And then what happens is we hold them back and we ask the panels to get together and take a look. That sounds like a systemic inefficiency. Uh, well, it's better than putting than the alternative, which is to put, oh, uh, put, put out uh, decisions that are internally inconsistent. And what happens is we do have a law department that helps draft proposed decisions and gives us reports. And that law department has about 60 people in it. And, um, and sometimes the law has changed since the attorneys, particularly in backlog civil appeals, wrote the briefs. Sometimes the law has even changed since the court attorney initially drafted a report. So we, we constantly have to be on the lookout for inconsistencies. And we, we try, and I think as a whole, we do a very good job of, of catching things before they go out. I'm sure you do. And by, by inefficiency, I meant that because of the volume of the cases, you, you, you have to do a, a whole lot of homework to make sure there isn't any consistency. It takes a lot. We have a really strong team here, and it takes a, a real team effort to try to put out a quality product. Um, obviously, uh, particularly with our civil cases, the attorneys have been waiting for argument dates and waiting for their decisions, and we want to try to get them heard and decided in a, in a timely manner, but we have to balance the need for expedition with the need to making sure that we're getting the final result. You know, you mentioned uh, the thousands of appeals that the second department decides and the collective 10,000 or more that the appellate divisions decide each year. The Court of Appeals hears about 200 cases a year as a maximum. So even though the Court of Appeals is known, uh, deservedly so, as our Supreme Court, as our court of last resort, the fact of the matter is that because they hear about 200 cases a year and the appellate divisions hear over 10,000 collectively, the appellate divisions are for most matters the court of last resort, and we have to respect that. And we have to be mindful that uh, people are counting on us to deliver not just a timely decision, but a correct decision. And the Court of Appeals is always the same seven judges sitting on the case, so they don't have to worry about panel inconsistencies, as you have to deal with all the time. That's certainly an advantage, it's the same, it's the same seven judges. And also, usually, because they're focused on matters of law of statewide importance, they, they're often confronted with cases where 
there are there are differences between departments, and they have the benefit of looking at competing opinions. We are trying to develop an internal body of law for ourselves, guided, of course, by on matters of federal law, the decisions of the United States Supreme Court, and on matters of state law, our, our primary sources of authority are the Court of Appeals and the statutes as given to us by the state legislature. How are the panels of judges uh, composed? And is there, a, in, is, there, is there any attempt to make sure that all of the judges, at least some of the time, sit with all of the other judges? When uh, the, our clerk, April Agostino, makes up the calendar, she does it primarily first by looking at the scheduling issues that particular judges have, uh, starting in order of seniority. So when the time comes to set up a calendar, April will come to me and ask me whether, in a say it's a given two month period, when I would like to sit or when I would like to avoid sitting. And then I tell her, well, I have an administrative board meeting on such and such a date. I have, I'm unavailable on such a date. These are the days when I, when I want to sit or when I can't sit. And then she'll proceed down the seniority list to Judge Mastro, and then all the way through to our most junior judge, Judge Wooten. When she has those scheduling requests, she endeavors to accommodate as many judges as possible. Uh, of course, the judges with the most seniority will have the greatest likelihood of having their, their wishes accommodated. That's one of the benefits of seniority. We endeavor overall to have diversity in our panels in terms of both uh, background and experience. Uh, background encompasses a number, of, a number of issues. Some of us are more experienced and have more uh, greater uh, knowledge or known for expertise in criminal law or in, civil, or in certain aspects of civil law. And I've frequently been asked, why don't you have a special panel that just hears matrimonial cases with judges who have an interest in that? or criminal cases with judges who just have an interest in that. And the problem is twofold. First, there may be a perception by certain lawyers that some judges have um, inherent uh, predilections that may make them pro-plaintiff or pro-defendant in particular types of cases, and we want to avoid that. Additionally, we are blessed with a diversity in our department of backgrounds, both geographic, community, and it's important that we bring that diversity to the cases that we hear. So having a diverse panel where judges come from different communities, from different walks of life, with different experiences, helps with that, bearing in mind that in our, in our calendars, we will have a range of cases in every calendar. Typically, our calendar has criminal cases, family court cases, and civil cases of all sorts. So having a diverse panel helps us deal with our diverse caseload. Now, you, you most of the time, I believe, sit with four judge panels, which, of course, always creates a potential of a tie vote. How often does that happen, and what do you do when your court is split two to two? So the second department for decades has sits in panels of four, and there's a very simple reason for that. Groups of four can hear more cases than groups of five uh, because you can spread the judges out a little better. Four being the constitutional requir constitutionally required quorum. We cannot go be below four. Um, I did a paper for, that the New York Law Journal ran a number of years ago uh, called Finding the Perfect Number, 
which analyzed uh, the number of times there had been dissents or double dissents in the appellate divisions. And they're very, very few. So for example, in, um, even in the, for the first department, which sits in panels of five, in deciding about 2,500 cases in 2018, they only had 16 uh, cases where there was a single dissent and 16 cases where there were two judges dis dissenting. So 32 dissents out of 2,500 or so appeals, very small number, but it does happen. In our, we have a rule which provides that when a case is submitted for decision, the lawyers, unless they object, uh, are deemed to have consented to our bringing in a fifth judge. And if uh, there is a tie, then a fifth judge is brought in to um, basically be the tiebreaker. Uh, the lawyers on that case will know who it is because uh, they'll see that there's a fifth name on the decision when that decision comes out. In the modern, we generally don't have re-arguments uh, when this happens. We do have, uh, the, the, when a fifth judge is brought in, the judge is given obviously access to the briefs and records, to the views of the parties, and also the judge reviews the videotapes that we have of all of our arguments. So unless there's some, some question that the fifth judge would like to ask the lawyers, the judge is fully prepared to then consider and vote. But as this is a, a very rare instance. So it sounds like it's not really an issue. Now, so that the judges come out, come out on the bench a certain day, they hear X number of cases, then what? How, how does it get from there to a decision? What's the process? So typically we hear from 20 to 24 cases um, a sit. Each judge, unlike the Court of Appeals where the judges don't know uh, what cases they're assigned, uh, they'll be assigned to report on in advance of the argument, we do. So uh, on, on a 20 case calendar, each judge will be assigned to be the reporting judge on five cases. So immediately after the argument, uh, the judges will go, uh, we typically have, um, we do our arguments in the morning. So we start at 10 o'clock. If things go relatively smoothly, we're usually done with argument by one or two the judges will have a quick lunch together, and then we'll retire to begin deliberating. The justice presiding, uh, typically, when, so when I'm when I sit, I'm always the justice presiding. We'll start by saying, "Okay, case number one, Judge so and so is reporting on that," and then Judge so and so would then lead the discussion on that case. And uh, so, I, as the uh, JP, I would also be reporting on five cases. And um, I know which, which, which of the ones I will be reporting on. It really wouldn't work with 20 cases for the judges not to know in advance uh, what they were going to be asked to report on. And the Court of sure. Appeals, with a smaller calendar, it's an easier task to, to manage. Um, I would say that the majority of the cases can be disposed of during the course of the after-argument consultation meaning that we're all pretty much in agreement as to what should be done. There are some cases where judges may reserve their votes uh, to say, look, I'd like to think about this one and do more research uh, or consider it further. And that will, those will be held aside for uh, either a supplemental report by the reporting judge or a supplemental decision or revised decision uh, and occasionally an opinion. 
how how is it decided if there is a written opinion um a signed opinion a procuring opinion or simply uh, a terse order well most of our, most of our cases are decided by memoranda decisions uh that are not unsigned by any particular judge the the reason for that is with deciding almost uh 3500 cases a year we couldn't possibly write opinions in every single case and many of them don't warrant it um so uh those can be disposed of by memo by by memo by memoranda the the cases that involve signed opinions usually involve issues of law that need to be thrashed out. Sometimes it's a way that we resolve internal conflicts. So for example, there, we, may, we may see in a particular case that there's one line of authority from our court that leads us one way and a, a different line of authority, and we use an opinion as a way of kind of straightening that out and expressing ourselves, and we may say, don't follow these cases anymore. This is, this is really our, our view. Typically, opinions are written by the judge who was the reporting judge. If, however, the reporting judge is not, uh, has a different view than the majority, meaning three judges say, I, we want to do one thing, the reporting judge is in the minority, then the majority writing will be by the senior most judge in the majority. So that would mean if I was not the reporting judge uh, on a panel uh, and the re we disagreed with the reporting judge, then I would get that writing. Now, what, what is your personal approach to dissents? Do you dissent every time you disagree or is there a, uh, a threshold, a standard that will um, prompt you to publicly break from your colleagues? Well, I probably have sat on um, three, two or 3,000 uh, appeals as presiding justice. I've dissented once um, because I felt very strongly about that case. Um, but is that, is that the only time you disagreed? That was, there were times when I have not necessarily agreed in its entirety. But the question is, is it going to elucidate an issue of law? And more often than not, we try to accommodate each other. So that if I say, look, uh, I have a problem with your saying this, and the, the majority says, well, look, would you go along if we change this to say this? We, we try to uh, work with that. And occasionally, we alter results that way. Um, so take, for example, a, a simple case uh, uh, of where uh, we're reviewing a sentence, a criminal sentence as to whether a sentence is uh, excessive or not. Well, one judge may think that the sentence is ex excessive, but it should be reduced from 10 years to five. Somebody else may say, well, no, it really should be two years. And we, we'll try to work with each other to try to come up with something that would represent a consensus of our views. We, we try very much to be a, a consensus court. Uh, that's not because anybody's cracking the whip and saying you can't speak out of turn. It's really more because we all want to try to get it right. And we do have a great deal of, re, of mutual respect for the views of our colleagues. To uh, build on that concept, I would imagine there are times in conference when the argument gets rather spirited 
And I wonder how you as a presiding justice prevent these um, professional, intellectual, legal disagreements from devolving into uh, personal um, disagreements. Well, one of, I think it was Judge Posner who was a, a well-known federal judge who sat on the Seventh Circuit once described being on a, an appellate court as sort of being like, like being in a shotgun marriage uh, in that you, um, you know, you get married, but you're not necessarily, you don't get necessarily choose who you, who you're married to. Um, so here we all wanted to be on the appellate division. Uh, some of us were appointed by different governors, uh, than others. So, so we all come from different backgrounds, but we all make an effort to, to be friendly and to not let a professional disagreement get in the way of our professional, um, uh, our personal relationships. So one of the things that we do, we, we do regularly meet, typically uh, in a non-COVID setting, uh, meet in person two to three times a month, typically on Wednesdays. And we all sit around uh, and we discuss common issues, we discuss matters relating to the administration of the court, and we have an opportunity during that period to talk about what's going on in our lives, events that we're celebrating, we invite each other to each other's events. We congratulate each other. Uh, if one judge is getting an, an award, uh, the other judges make it a point to try to come and show uh, their support by going to that event. And so we, we try to support each other in a, in a personal way. If a judge is ill, uh, we, we try to help that judge out. If there's some circumstance where a judge needs assistance, we all try to help out that judge. And so we, we, we have a deep, intimate, personal connection with each other. And that helps tide over um, professional disagreements that do happen from time to time. It's inevitable. We've got uh, 21 strong-willed personalities, people with uh, clear uh, views and opinions, and we, we tr but we try to forge a consensus. I think what you're saying is you're able to disagree without being disagreeable. That is our goal. And I, I would tell you that there, there's no one on the court who I would, would consider anything other than a, a dear, dear friend. And, and part of the most one part of the experience of being on this court is the opportunity to work so closely uh, with so many fine judges. And there isn't anyone here who I wouldn't want to have the opportunity to work with. Oh, that's great to hear. Now, how much attention are you able to pay to the work of the other three departments with, with the volume you have? I mean, it's entirely possible that the fourth department will have addressed uh, a novel issue um, that is now before you. Is that, you mentioned you have a large legal staff. Is that part of their responsibility to monitor what the other departments are doing? We are always looking at what the other departments are doing. Although we are, I can't say that we are as intimately associated with their internal issues um, and, and comparing their cases, because I'm sure to some degree, they have simil a similar problem. If the, if the first department is deciding uh, 2,500 appeals a year, there are going to be times when even sitting in panels of five, they're, going to be panel disagreements. So I'm not, I'm not sure that we're particularly versed with the nuances of how 
what the voting patterns might be in the individual appellate divisions. But we, we are very mindful of what appell, other, the, the other appellate divisions do. I would say there are certain subject areas that are probably uh, more sensitive that require us to pay a lot more attention to what the other departments do. For example, attorney disciplinaries. Uh, a number of years ago, an effort was made to um, assure that the procedures and the substance of the law that's applied to attorney disciplinaries is relatively uniform among the departments. Why should a, a lawyer who um, commits a, an act of a professional misconduct in Buffalo have a significantly different sanction than a lawyer who commits that same act of professional misconduct on, in Smithtown, Long Island? So we do pay attention very closely to what the other departments are doing in attorney grievance matters, uh, because we know that it's important there for their, the appellate divisions to try to be consistent. Now, to shift gears a little bit, most of the time uh, a, a case gets to the Court of Appeals on permission of the Court of Appeals. Of course, the appellate division can also refer a case to the Court of Appeals and, and basically thrust a, court, a case onto the, the court's lap. Um, this chief judge, and well, really all of them in my memory, um, we're not particularly enamored with that practice. Um, what are the circumstances when your court, the appellate division, will basically tell the Court of Appeals they have to take a case? So I, I'm very familiar with this because as, as you may know, I served for two years as a law clerk to Judge Jason, um, who was a, a, the senior associate judge of the Court of Appeals. And I can remember as a law clerk, there was a particular judge uh, on the appellate division who was always granting leave in criminal cases. And, um, and the court was not particularly um, receptive about uh, the number of the cases that we were getting. So I think we have to make a distinction here between civil cases and criminal cases. And on civil cases, we also have to make a distinction between non-final cases and final cases. In a final judgment, appeal from a final judgment in a civil case, the Court of Appeals has the ability to grant leave to appeal. And while the lawyers can also ask us to grant leave to appeal, we typically will look at it and say, well, why should we decide that for the court when the court can decide that for itself? So typically we don't, we're not that receptive to granting leave to appeal in civil cases that involve final judgments. Where there's a non-final judgment, however, meaning let's say, for example, summary judgment has been denied and somebody wants to take that issue up to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals doesn't have the authority to grant leave. Mm -hmm. And there we will give that consideration because there may be issues in the non-final circumstance that, that are worthy of court, court of Appeals consideration. So for example, let's suppose that in a, there's a discovery dispute and the discovery dispute involves whether certain materials are subject to attorney-client privilege. Uh, and, it's the, and that involves a, a unique legal analysis. That might require the Court of Appeals to, to get involved. Uh, and, and so we are more sensitive to granting leave where we are the only authority that can do so. On the criminal side, 
it's a unique problem. The um, a judge of the appellate division who sat on the case can grant leave to appeal. And a judge of the Court of Appeals can grant leave to appeal. But only one application can be made. So if somebody asks the appellate division, an appellate division justice, to grant leave, and the judge says no, then uh, that person cannot then go to the Court of Appeals judge and say, I would like leave. Typically, what lawyers will do is um, if there is a dissent in a criminal case in, in the appellate division, the lawyer will go and make the application to the judge who dissented. There, the, the dissenting judge certainly does have an incentive to say, gee, I think I was right. My colleagues disagreed with me. Why can't I get vindication at the Court of Appeals? But even there, we, we try to be sensitive to the fact that we have certain review powers that the um, Court of Appeals doesn't. So for example, at the appellate division, we can review weight of the evidence um, where the Court of Appeals can't. So if the dissent at the appellate division is on a, a factual issue that the Court of Appeals can't consider, we might say to the lawyer, look, maybe you might want to make this application to the court itself rather than to us. I so see. We, try, we try to be respectful of, of our role in the system. And um, while we do have the authority to do it, we're most likely to grant leave in civil cases involving non-final decisions where no one else can do it but us. I'm sure the chief judge appreciates that. And speaking, speaking of, um, and shifting to your administrative role, as a presiding justice, you are, of course, a member of the administrative board, the, the four PJs and the chief judge who, who, dis, who make statewide policy. Um, how often do you meet and what sort, of, what sort of things do you do? What sort of issues do you um, undertake? So um, we typically meet every six to seven weeks. Um, so over the course of a year, let's say roughly 10 meetings, there'd be roughly 10 meetings a year. What uh, the agenda typically includes are requests for amendments or changes to the rules uh, primarily the rules of the chief administrative judge uh, relating to practice and procedure in the various courts. Uh, they also may consist of rule amendments to the rules of professional conduct, which uh, relate, you know, lay the predicate for attorney grievances. Uh, the Bar Association has had an ongoing, state bars had an ongoing project to reform aspects of the rules of professional conduct, so we've regularly considered those. We have uniform rules of the appellate divisions so that uh, the appellate divisions have made an effort to try to unify their practices. But if those rules need revision, we discuss them first at the administrative board level. Um, they're used as an opportunity uh, for the appellate division PJs to communicate uh, with each other about issues that they're seeing that affect the other departments and to try to help give the uh, chief judge a statewide perspective on uh, matters involving the court system. Um, it, it's, they're really educational. Uh, my fellow PJs, Judge, Judge Acosta, Judge Gary, Judge Whalen, uh, I've really gotten to know them very well. Uh, judge Marks joins us, the chief administrative judge, of course the chief judge, and typically the meeting will be about three or four hours and then we have an opportunity to have lunch together and to talk about common issues. And it's, it's really an, a, 
a great learning experience and an invaluable opportunity to exchange ideas and information. Let's uh, shift back to your uh, judicial role. If an attorney is about to argue before your court for the first time, what should they know? Let's go give them some inside baseball. Um, what do you want to hear, like to hear from an attorney, and what drives you nuts? <laughs> okay. So first, a useful suggestion is um, ever since I became presiding justice, we have put up on our website the oral arguments of um, of uh, that, that our court has held. Typically, they're available publicly for up to a year. So I would say for any first-time attorney who's coming in to argue, watch. Um, and uh, if, if, if I'm presiding, you might want to check a look at, at other cases that I've sat on. Another judge is, other judge is going to be on. Watch, watch what the, how they do it. So you can kind of get a feel for how things go. That said, Every judge uh, comes in really incredibly well prepared to oral, for oral argument. Everyone has read the briefs, the salient points of the record, the decision below, um, and more often than not, a, a staff attorney report which uh, gives some guidance. And oftentimes as well, the judges may have exchanged views in advance. Um, typically, we call each other up. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, we may exchange emails. Um, I may email another judge in advance of argument. What do you think about this issue on this case? What do you think about that issue? So there is, we, we have the dialogue. So when the attorneys come in, don't act as if we know nothing about the case. Um, what we want to hear is an, a is a cogent explanation for the party's position. Um, we don't want to be read to, so please don't come in with a yellow pad and start reading. It won't happen that way. Typically what we try to do is we give an attorney the opportunity to express himself or herself, and then typically you get a lot of questions. Um, now we, own, we can't give everybody an unlimited amount of time, but we typically allow an attorney, even if the attorney's gotten questions from the get-go, uh, an opportunity to assemble his or her thoughts. It is more likely than not that uh, a respondent will get a question right out of the box uh, rather than get into a pre-existing argument. Lawyers should welcome the opportunity to get a question. If you don't get a question from the bench, that means two things, one of two things. You, everybody's complete agreement with what you're saying, or everyone is in complete disagreement with what you're saying. Um, and, and as an advocate, because I, I had an active appellate practice before I went on the bench, I welcome the opportunity to, to hear from a judge what might be troubling or of concern to that judge. I'd like to know what the judge was thinking about my case. So I. I would welcome uh, the opportunity to discuss it. It is generally not good when you get a question for the lawyer to say, well, I was getting to that. Let me, let me say this before I get to that. With judges, if a judge has a question, it's because the judge wants to know what the attorney's answer is to that question. So don't say, I'll get around to it. Try get to around to it. Yeah, <laughs> get around to it now. <laughs> and what I would also say is, 
don't repeat yourself. We've heard what you've had to say in your writings. When, when you start repeating, we, we tend to turn off. And we, all right, we've heard that before. We either accept it or we don't accept it. So try to say something at oral argument that's engaging, that provides, puts a human context on uh, the dispute that's involved. It does happen that, uh, uh, and, I, and I'm, you haven't asked me this, but uh, I'm often asked at, by, by lawyers or at bar events, does oral argument change anything? I was about to ask you that, so thank you. Okay, okay. so uh, let me ask, I'll answer that question by saying, it, it can. Often, I don't know. I think in some cases, the, it's pretty clear what the answer is. Uh, and and oral, it's hard for an oral argument to change a judge's mind. But there are times when it makes a difference. And you get the impression from talking, to, talking with the lawyer and hearing what the lawyer had to say that maybe you misunderstood something or that um, there's, a, there's more of a point here than you had, um, than we'd grasped from the writing. It may be that the facts are complicated and that there's a nuance to those facts that we didn't grasp from um, reading the written page. So an oral argument is an opportunity to, to, make a, to make a clear point. And don't assume going in, if you're the respondent, that you're coming in with a chip on their shoulder uh, or that, that meaning you won below, so therefore you, you're going to get upheld. There's, we don't look at it that way. I would say for an appellant, there is a, sort of a burden in, a, in that you have to convince us that there was an error that was made. If we're not convinced that there was an error that's made, then we're probably not going to interfere with it. But uh, for a respondent, don't assume that you get the benefit of a presumption of correctness. Um, come in as if you were arguing it fresh. Now let's turn to the uh, trial judges. What do you wish they better understood about the appellate process? And if you could maybe a little bit um, explain the importance of uh, the record on appeal and how, how it is developed. Okay. So one of the things, and, I, and I've addressed this with trial judges uh, when I meet with them, is for us to have a clear understanding of why, why the trial judge did what the trial judge did. Um, that doesn't mean that a trial judge has to write a law review article on every case, uh, but it's very frustrating for us when we get, for example, a motion, a decision that says, summary judgment denied, there's an issue of fact, period. What were you thinking? What's the issue of fact? Uh, clue us in. I will tell you, I start my own preparation for getting ready to, for, on, on an appeal, is I, I read the trial judge's decision first before I read anything else. I wonder, what's the case about? If I don't have an explanation from the trial judge, then I have a problem. And this, um, and, and it also tends to foster more appeals because if lawyers don't understand why they lost, then they're going to try to take it up on appeal. Um, that relates to decisions. It also relates to written decisions on written motions. It also relates to bench decisions um, that are reflected in um, a transcript. If an attorney comes in uh, and asks for an adjournment of a trial and the judge says no, and that's all the dialogue, judge, can I have an adjournment? No. 
And then the, the appeal is over the denial of the adjournment. How, why, we don't know any of the circumstances. If the trial judge says, well, no, this is your fifth request. And the last time you were in here, I told you you weren't going to get any more. Then that helps, gives, gives us some information that we wouldn't otherwise might have had from the trial judge's perspective. So while we're not expecting a magnum opus, um, an explanation from the trial judge as to what is involved is, is very helpful to us and can also help us understand why the trial judge made the decision that the trial judge made. I understand. De developing a record is both the obligation of the trial court and the lawyers. In civil and criminal cases, we are not very likely to reach issues that weren't argued below. Um, we don't like sandbagging judges. So uh, that means uh, somebody's arguing on appeal a point that they didn't raise with the judge because it's not fair to the judge. The judge didn't get the opportunity to make a decision on that point. It also may be that the appeal would have been obviated had the issue had been raised and the trial judge handled it. So it's important that if a lawyer um, wants to make a record and for a potential appeal to make sure that the point that they want to argue is clearly articulated and clearly presented. Uh, that means, for example, in a criminal case, if the lawyer is going to argue at the end of, uh, if there's a conviction that the evidence was not legally sufficient, then the lawyer has to make a motion for a, for a trial order of dismissal that says why the lawyer believes that the evidence is legally insufficient and as to what element. Was it the element of intent? Was it the, the um, insufficiency of the evidence of corroboration where corroboration is required? What is it about it? You can't just say, judge, the, the evidence is not enough. You have to give us, some, you have to put some flesh on the bones. I understand. Let me end by asking you, uh somewhat loaded question. What do you wish the other branches of government, the executive and the legislative branches, understood, better understood about the judicial branch? Well, I'm gonna broaden that, I'm gonna broaden my answer a little bit, if I can, John, by talking Please. about what I, what I wish everyone understood about the second department. People ask, why does it take so long for cases to get heard and decided? And the answer is, because we have such a great volume. And, uh, and there's a lot we have to do to get a case decided. So I mentioned that before when we were chatting that most of the cases are decided um, right at the conference after the oral argument. But sometimes there are cases that have to be taken back. Well, if I'm taking cases back and then two, in another two weeks I'm getting another panel, another group of 20, and I'm going to, if, unless I'm really diligent, I'm going to rapidly accumulate a backlog. And then by the time I circulate a revised writing on a case that's being held for further deliberation to my colleagues, they've also have heard 20, 40, 60 other matters. And we got to go back. And well, what was that case all about anyway? What was the point that we have to deal with? And and so the process of deciding appeals when you're in a court with a lot of volume is time consuming and labor intensive. And if you care about the work product, which we do deeply, and you care about getting it right, it does take time. 
Judge, thank you so much for your time and your insight. And uh, please stay safe and healthy. Thank you, John. Thank you for affording me this opportunity. It's been a lot of fun.